How would you like me speaking at which volume? Does it sound good? Nonprofit Journalism, and your host for Return to Dewey Square, a limited series podcast marking the fifth anniversary of Occupy Boston. Together, we'll be looking at the legacy of the Occupy Wall Street movement, as well as at some of the activist history that led up to the protests of 2011 and developments in social justice that have come in the time since. Along with my team at Binge, especially my co-executive producer on this project, John Loftus, I have spent the past month interviewing people who participated in Occupy. And our work isn't done, as we'll continue reaching out to occupiers in the coming months and releasing more installments. Altogether, we hope these podcasts serve as a time capsule for an event that the popular narrative has whitewashed, and as a people's history of activism then and now in Greater Boston. I won't keep you for much longer right now. We have some pretty incredible interviews to get to. I just wanted to note the obvious, which is that there was no real way to account for even close to everything that happened in those radical, autumnal times. Even some individual days at Occupy Boston were hard to get a grip around, with one particularly active 24-hour period seeing volunteer stylists from Newberry Street visit Dewey Square to trim overgrown Occupy mops, a dramatic early morning drug-related arrest, two separate marches unfold in different directions, and the birth of a child. Despite the many facets and stages of the movement, even just locally, we tried our best to paint an accurate portrait. Finally, not like you have to go very far these days to hear people hollering about politics and the economy, but in order to put you back in the moment, we pulled up some interviews from 2011 with people who are in Dewey Square in Boston and in Zuccotti Park in New York. You'll hear them scattered throughout the series, but here's a sample. to fight for our country and to keep it, you know, true to serving its people. And when it doesn't do that, it's immoral not to stand up and say something. I'm here myself as a free individual to humanize the markets 
and to have true participatory democracy, bottom-up democracy, and to make Wall Street hear the sound of what democracy means. What kind of power? People power! Wall Street, it crashes, and uh, you know people starve, people lose their jobs, things like that. We're very angry at Wall Street. It's the heart of capitalism, American capitalism especially. That's why we're here today at Wall Street. There's no reason to not be peaceful. We just want to get a point across. We're just trying to let people know what's going on and why we're here for it. One in seven children in the United States suffer from hunger. At the same time, we're giving billions and almost a trillion to Wall Street just for bailouts. Something needs to change. We need an economy for the people and by the people, not by the rich and for the rich. We asked some of our interviewees what attracted them to Occupy Boston in the first place. Throughout this episode and subsequent ones, you'll hear from occupiers including Robin Jacks, Renee Perez, John Ford, Lauren Chalice, Patrick Doherty, and many others. But starting it off here is Jay Kelly, a Dorchester native who ran the Occupy Boston sign tent. Please excuse the background noise. We met a few weeks ago at Biddy Early's, a dive bar in downtown Boston, that's crucial to the story in its own right. So I showed up at Occupy uh, the first um, the, the first planning meeting, and I wasn't really expecting anything much from it. I just wanted to go check it out. Who did you come with? I came with myself. You know, I showed up on my own. Um, nobody that I was really connected to ended up being involved in Occupy uh, locally. I had some family involved in a couple of Occupies uh, outside the area. But um, I, ju- I read about it in the Metro and, and went and checked it out. I, I just remember all the people coming together and it literally was packed to the brim with people just seriously occupying that area. I have to take this into the suburbs. I have to stay here with it. Like, I, I think that, like, it has to be, you know, bigger than just New York or bigger than this Boston one. Like, it has to go into the suburbs type of thing. Though you'll never get the same answer from two different occupiers, we thought it could be helpful to start off by offering some kind of basic definition of what Occupy was. If we do our job here, this will reach people for years to come, some of whom were in grade school or younger when the movement broke out, while others maybe walked right past the camp but were too busy dealing with the grind of daily life to stop in themselves. We could have asked economists and academics about the housing market crash in 2008 that toppled countless American dreams once and for all, causing a nationwide meltdown that, among other things, led people to occupy parks near financial centers from coast to coast. But that's not what we did. We went straight to the people who were there. Participants, observers, the works. I mean, you didn't really get a grasp of like what it was and what the movement was until like, you know, the tents were on the ground and everybody, everybody was over there. But it just seemed like, you know, as it rolled on, it was like, holy crap. View Occupy, I think of it as part of the Arab Spring. Like, not that we were part of the Arab Spring, but there was just something happening, right? So the Arab Spring happened, Wisconsin happened, which was the occupation from activists there of the Capitol building in Wisconsin. Um, and then there was just this anger. We were doing a lot of following of um, the the Arab Spring as it was happening. So sure. we were really like that was like daily conversation daily interest i had been in an occupation before so i kind of knew what it was and i was looking for that type of like um thing you know you know and sort of like something like a platform to like 
express my grievances or just like be pissed off at the government more. To do this project right, uh, we felt it was appropriate to take it back to Dewey Square, where protesters camped for 70 days in 2011, from the last day of September through their eviction on a brutal, cold December night. Our team at the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism advertised that we were setting up a pop-up newsroom where occupiers could come and share their stories for this podcast. More than a dozen people showed up, with some even joining us afterward at Biddy Early's, that uh, cozy dive bar I was telling you about. Yeah, that place. It's an awesome place, and it's a place that will forever remain special to some occupiers and to journalists like me who covered Dewey Square. It was a spot where we all sought beer and shelter, used the bathrooms, and of course, drunkenly accused each other of being undercover detectives. Memories. It was like a, it was funny, it was like a meeting. Well, it was just, it felt like it could be with the Occupy, it could, I, there could be two of you guys in here or there could be 50, you know what I mean? So it was just like, at the time too, we weren't too like, you know, you're not busy on a Sunday or Monday night and you guys roll in. Now I got a nice little crowd going and it was all chill, relaxed, you know, kids motivated to start and promote a cause, you know. That's Sean, one of the owners of Biddy Early's, who I never need an excuse to go visit. Meanwhile, across the street at Dewey, we asked some former occupiers if they can remember the layout of the camp. Give me a quick rundown. Um, of course I can. You can't? You can't. Um, can spir- spiritual- spirituality tent, um, the, um, the intro tent, the food tent was all that area. Um, the library would have been way down there. Um, medical was there at first, but then it moved over there on the right side of Main Street. Uh, the GA area, of course. The DA tent was up by the GA area, but then it moved into this like semi-subterranean complex in this corner behind the behind the um, spirituality tent. Weird street. Of course, it's humorous to come back here and just remember um, the day, what it looked like. But other than that, it's just what it is today. It's just a memory. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a square where something great happened. Again, like in Dewey Square on that building, the DOT building, there was a, it basically turned into an art gallery. Artists came and, and made their stuff and put it up there. Sometimes people would literally just duct tape a piece of poster board to the wall. Other artists came with very intricate wheat paste. Um, there's an artist uh, that made like an Occupy Boston poster. An artist, an artist uh, Jesse Haley did that. And, um, you know, the, the iconic photos of Russell Simmons when he was speaking at the camp, there was the orange and red and black poster that uh, was up on the wall there. It was nothing. Um, Were there any food trucks that went there? Just, no. No, not even like one? There was a farmer's market. Right. I used to be on the phone with them all the time, being like, I'm so sorry, I'm trying. You know, there is some emotion. When I see it vibrant, I think, oh, wow. Like, the, the elements for social engagement and civic engagement are still all here. The person you're hearing now is Nadim Mazin, who was active in Occupy Boston from the start, mostly in the media operation. Nadim has since won election to the Cambridge City Council twice, and he came by to talk about his earlier campaigning with the nascent Occupy movement. Uh, when I walk by and it's at night, it's nostalgic, there's not much going on, you know, there's that, um, there is that nostalgia for a time when we were really doing something cooperatively, and it felt like even if it was at times unfocused, there were certainly core stripes of productivity here and all over the world. 
a lot of people forget that we were on phone calls with organizers nationwide and worldwide that felt like the beginning of someone actually driving the ships. The commercial media missed a lot when it came to Occupy. Mostly, in my opinion, for a lack of trying. But the most persistent and unwarranted insult dealt to the movement was the claim that they were all a bunch of rich kids. In reality, participants hailed from a kaleidoscopic range of backgrounds. And most of us were holding down full-time jobs throughout this entire thing. You know, and I think that is also like a limitation to a 24-7 occupation is that you're having to prove that you have a job. Like mar marching in the streets and people are like, get a job, I'm like I just got off of work and now I'm here walking for like five miles. Like, what do you want of me, you know? So that I think was like a tough thing, but I think it's also this thing of like, I don't know. If someone had just come down and talked to five different people at Occupy, they would have heard five completely different stories. I really wasn't up to very much, maybe like in and out of school, uh, trying to like get into school and get some type of purpose, like um, meeting with like a, a social worker from the veterans uh, hospital every week. Just uh, walk, walking around town, hanging out, not really doing very much. That's Patrick Doherty, an Army veteran. A Boston native who had recently returned from a tour in Iraq, he was looking for an outlet through which he could grieve against the government, and he found it at Occupy Boston. Unlike some others who have sour memories of people who should have been allies not being able to get along, Patrick has mostly fond memories of those cold days in Dewey. Um, I had been at school at UMass Boston, kind of uh, reg pretty much regularly. And, uh, and you were in the service before that? Yeah, I was in the Army before that. So. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Um, I was in Iraq. I was uh, I, I served in Baghdad and uh, Fallujah. Uh, I was there for 15 months as a medic. Uh, I did some security and combat missions. When I got out, came home, went straight back into school, and I had been in school from that period on since the time I had heard of Occupy Boston. The idea for this part of the podcast was to create scenes sort of like in a bank heist movie where you see what all the different players are up to in life before they get together. So at that time, I was at, I actually was a researcher, and I was researching, um, I was actually living in London at the time, and I was, because I'm from Boston, I was born and raised here, so this is my hometown, so, and I was living in the UK, um, I'm trying to remember the timeline here, there's, there's a lot of it splotchy, but I was actually back and forth in the UK a lot at that time, and I had heard about the Occupy movement while I was in Denver. I had heard in the newspapers that something was happening, like Occupy Wall Street, and I was giving a speech at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank across the street here for Toastmasters, and I simply walked across the street right after the speech, talked to people, and all these people were saying the same things that I had been saying, except they were getting international attention, and I was just screaming at my TV. And the stories only got more and more and more amazing. I wrote a book about the first three months of the Occupy Wall Street movement and even traveled coast to coast asking people what brought them out to protest. I always found it both disheartening and curious to hear critics of Occupy or even just more lazy members of the mainstream media lump everybody together in a group. The truth 
is that they came from all walks of life. Here's John Stephen Dwyer, followed by Rene Perez and Nadim again. Sort of an administrative professional for a nonprofit. And when I was actually, when Occupy actually started, I had one of those really bad jobs where you're uh, calling people up asking for donations from an office in downtown Boston. And I was sitting in that office one afternoon and I heard drums outside the window like, and I'm like, what, what, what is that? So I ran to the window and I saw there was a parade going down the street from the common and it was Occupy and all the housing groups and all that the first day of Occupy that were heading from the common down to here to Dewey Square. So I had a second shift I was supposed to start, but I was like, this looks like more fun and more interesting. So I didn't do my second shift. I just split and joined the throng and went down to Dewey Square. And I never went back to that job. I was looking for an apartment. I had just gone to look at a place in Charlestown with a bunch of bros, which I wasn't happy about, but it was like already deep September and I was like freaking out. Um, and on my way back from Charlestown to this place I was staying in Austin, uh, I, I was like hungry and poor. And I was like, you know, I, I had heard about Occupy. I had heard that it was an ad busters thing. Like, and so that like made me think it was adorable, you know, because uh, I, I was an activist for a long for a long time, uh, but I had kind of like stopped being an activist for years after the anti-war movement stuff. You know, I think five years ago with my business hat, it would have been uh, you know entrepreneur. But most of the time, I was down here at you know Dewey Square uh, in the Occupy process, and I would have said I'm a I'm a volunteer trying to help you know bring transparency to government and bank malfeasance. Our travels for this podcast haven't taken us too far, but we were sure to travel down to Plymouth to speak with Lauren Chalice and John Ford, both of whom were very involved at Occupy Boston. John also spoke with the press quite a bit back then, however hesitantly. Thanks to them for the hospitality, for the outstanding vegan pizza that we ate, and for being real, just like I knew they would be. John started off by talking about how he had worked in the Los Angeles Public Library system before traveling, opening his own small bookstore in Plymouth, and eventually becoming a camp librarian at Occupy Boston. When you travel like that, you really see a different side of this country. You really do. Like, especially like hitchhiking, especially with backpacks, you walk into a McDonald's, use the bathroom, they're like, no, leave, you get out right now with those backpacks type of thing. Uh, when I was younger, um, I interned at a farm animal rescue um, in New York. Um, I did some like circus protests. I did a lot of leafleting um, when I was in high school for veganism and animal rights. It probably annoyed a lot of people. Um, and then when I was out in Portland, like I just I just went to all sorts of like marches and things like that. I wasn't really the most active person before Occupy, nor really since. I mean, I've always been politically aware. I think of what of kind of what's, you know, being fought for by uh, left-wing groups and whatnot. Um, my introduction was to like punk and hardcore community when I was young. And you know, you, you read the liner notes and you know, Chomsky and that great. And, it, and then you kind of like, by the time you do that, you just kind of like, it's kind of hard to not know what's happening and be attention, you know, pay attention to what's going on. But I, I wasn't like, I wasn't active. I didn't seek like just you know marches or rallies or not. Um, I told my boss, you know, that I was like going back and forth from Occupy Boston, and like she just didn't even know what it was. Um, and I said it's been all over the news, and she's like, I don't watch the news; it makes me sad. That's like very typical of 
I know a lot of people like that. They just don't know what's happening in the world because it hurts their feelings. Finally, to wind it down for this episode, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Occupy Boston and the history of occupations in this area long before 2011, it seemed important to nail down the story of how the Dewey Square encampment itself came to be in the first place. To lead us through it, here's Robin Jacks, one of the key people who helped start Occupy Boston through social media. That was a really cool feeling. So there were flyers, um, Facebook page. There was a Facebook invite for our first meeting. <laughs> and that was, we were going to meet. <laughs> I'm laughing thinking about it because it's so preposterous. But we were going to meet at the Brugger's Bagels downtown crossing, which is like the size of a train car, maybe. That was our first, not even, it's so small. It's like a closet. We're like, oh, we'll just meet there. And we figured maybe 10 people would show up. And then we... <laughs> We were like, no, that's not going to work. We're going to have to meet somewhere outside. This is before This was so early. This, is, this was planning the bandstand meeting. So the bandstand meeting was the first public anything that we ever had. So bring me back before that then. So what, tell me about what pre-bandstand. So we were like, okay, well, we'll meet at Brugger's Bagels in downtown Crossing to formulate the idea calling for an occupation at some point in this, the near future. I figured, like... We'll all meet up, and then in a few weeks, you know, we'll get a couple people put tents down, and then maybe something will take off. If not, whatever, we'll go home. Right? But there was also this energy to it. Like, it was going to be something. So then we started looking at the people responding, and I remember uh, one person was like, I don't think we're going to be able to fit in Bruder's Bagels. And the reply was like, 500 people are attending. <laughs> we were like, oh, okay. So we were like, all right, we're going to meet at the bandstand. Activists have done this for years. Let's be part of that. We broke out into different groups and people were supposed to decide where we wanted to march to in addition to the place we wanted to take over and also the date on which we wanted to have this march. We, it was like a whole bunch of people from Boston on Twitter. Well, not a whole bunch. There were four people, including myself, that all kind of found each other on Twitter, right? And that was around maybe the 25th. And it felt like it had been this really long time, but really Occupy had only been happening for a week. And out of the four of us, only two had been in New York. So it was this guy, Nelson. He was down there from the beginning. Uh, a woman named Marissa, who's a chap protest chaplain. She was there. Um, it, it was, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's hard to even like kind of imagine because time was very different during Occupy. It was two and a half months, but it felt like a year, even as it was happening. One really interesting thing is that I was at these uh, the meetings in the in the, uh, in the park that we had um, in. Um, it wasn't in the public garden. It was in. Um, bandstand. It was at the bandstand, and my whole thing at these meetings there were two things that I, I felt really strongly about. One was if we don't put in a ton of homework, we're not going to do a good job, and the other was if we don't collect one another's information we're going to lose out on all the great momentum that's happening early. So I took it upon myself to collect everyone's email I could. I think a few others were doing the same thing. And I suggested that if we really wanted to kick off sooner rather than later, when I was actually in favor of later and planning it properly, everyone else decided sooner. Schism. Well, it's fine. Actually, most people said sooner, and I went along with it. But I said, let's come down to Danger Awesome. And we spent two full all-nighters, a handful of us, planning what would eventually, I think, be the early communication strategy. And that made a huge difference for me, but it also, I think, showed me that there are always those willing to put in insane levels of energy 
when it comes to organizing things that are a little bit more challenging and a little bit more public service oriented? I was one of the people advocating for the common because of the history of protests on the common. People have been protesting on the common for hundreds of years. Um, but, and then there was also, the three choices were Boston Common, Post Office Square, which for people that aren't super familiar with it, it's basically like a really nice green space in the middle, like the heart of the financial district. It's right outside of Bank of America, essentially. So that's why that was popular. And then Dewey Square is this very narrow but long triangle of space, kind of like wedged in by South Station. Now it's like a super popular place for yuppies to go get their lunch. So there was uh, at the first planning meeting on the common, there was uh, like five breakout groups. One ended up being logistics and then uh, media, food, uh, stuff like that. Um, the medics also uh, were organized then. A lot has changed in the five years since. And in a big way, that's what this podcast is all about. As for Dewey Square itself. So we're certainly in the financial district. You can look around, right? I was surprised to see the vibrance today because I usually come when it's later. Yeah. Um, and certainly not surprised to see the lack of, of diversity. But but, but Boston is working on it in, in a sense. I think I think there's, there's something starting here that could be productive, could be equitable. I mean, I'd go to some sort of like drinky drinky event here. That wouldn't like, you know, I'm not too dour for that. Um, I teach an after-school program, so I usually don't. I'm usually sort of priced out of that, like middle-class stuff. But uh, I'd go to that, yeah. Of course, it's humorous to come back here and just remember um, the day, what it looked like. But other than that, it's just what it is today. It's just a memory. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a square where something great happened. Thanks for listening. Check for the pictorial version of this feature on bingeonline.org. And stay tuned for upcoming installments of Return to Dewey Square, in which we'll be speaking with lots more occupiers about everything from homelessness to surveillance. Also, thanks to everyone at the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism and our funders for making this all happen. To the Matthew Filipovich Show for the clip at the beginning and to all those who took the time to participate in this engagement process. We hope that you'll stick with us as we ride out this critical people's history over the next few months. Until then, I'm Chris Ferron, Editorial Director of Binge. <laughs>